Hello and welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast with Jason and Pete from Squeaky Pedal. Today we are delighted to be joined by Nicola Nash. Nicola works for the Joint Casualty and Compassionate Centre Commemorations Team, the JCCC, who are also known as the War Detectives. And they carry out incredibly important work helping to identify the remains of soldiers that are still discovered today. So we'd like to thank you for coming onto the podcast, Nicola. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So to get us started then, can you tell us a little bit more about the JCCC and when it was set up? Of course. So the JCCC, as we call it, was set up in 2015 as it is today. Previous to that, it was a single service. So the the Army, Navy, RAF would would have had their own version of us. But the department as a whole basically deals with the deaths and compassionate cases within the entire armed forces. So that stretches from the modern day uh, all the way back to historic, which is what we deal with. So any repatriations that you see on television, that sort of thing, that's all dealt with by the JCCC. So basically, we're a point of contact 24-7, 365 days a year if our armed forces need us. And how did you personally become involved in the JCCC? Um, well, I mean, I was basically looking for a job that involved military history. <laughs> so I, th- I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to have a Google and see what comes up. And then this job came up and I couldn't believe it. It was basically my dream job. So, uh, you know, I've done a degree in archaeology. I've had experience um, in archaeology. Uh, history's my passion, especially military. So this really was my ideal job. And here I am six years later. It's a bit of an unknown kind of quantity then, I'd say, you guys are. You're kind of in the background and like you say we see all these kind of commemorations or whatever they might be and that you guys are the kind of the on the front line in that sense of that and then so so give us an idea of how does that process kind of work then how does the team how do you guys get notified if remains are discovered basically it can be any theatres of war that british soldiers have fought in historically and when you think about first and second world war that can be anywhere from you know the, the far east to, to europe you know we've had a case in canada even When a set of remains are found, we will get notified by it's either going to be the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, perhaps the government, someone from the British Embassy, you know, a variety of of people are going to, you know, get involved and let us know what's happening. And then from that point on, we'll have maybe a report submitted to us detailing everything that's been found, or we might have direct contact with whoever has found the remains. You know, it, it can happen in such a variety of ways, but A majority of our cases are always going to be France and Belgium, First World War. So with those cases, we will get contact from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and we've got a really good setup with them. So it's all done very fluidly and we we know exactly what happens and they send us a report um, and then we can start working on that report from there. So that comes in then. And then what's the next steps then? Like, presumably, it depends on what period of history we're talking about. But what's the next, what are some of the maybe the next steps that you go through to attempt to find out a soldier's identity? So when we get a report sent to us, it'll have details of, you know, what was found, what was found with them, where they were found. They're they're the sort of three crucial details, really, that we then take forward to try and identify them. Any artefacts they may have been found with, obviously, if there's an ID disc, that's absolutely ideal, but that very rarely happens, unfortunately. Military ID discs were actually made of a cardboard-type material during the First and Second World War. So, of course, the second they were buried in the ground, it only took a couple of weeks before they completely dissolve. However, some soldiers did have them professionally made, you know, a a steel disc or, or 
a bracelet or, you know, a coin was engraved, that sort of thing. However, unfortunately, that happens quite rarely. There might be other things, maybe a spoon with their service number stamped onto it. Anything like that that can actually give us a name is fantastic. However, most of the time what we're working with is, is what was on their uniform. So can we get an idea of what regiment they served with? Is there anything to signify what rank they may be? Those are really the crucial things we need. Everything else that might be found with them are great artefacts and really interesting, but they don't tend to tell us um, you know, who that person is. Once we've got an idea of what regiment they belong to, we can then start looking at when it was that they were potentially killed. And for that, we've got an absolute wealth of historical documents, such as war diaries. We use the war diaries a lot to plot the movements of each regiment throughout the wars and then using those we can sort of see exactly when they might have been in that area obviously there's certain areas where say like the Somme battlefield where there was such a huge loss of life that we think to ourselves oh it's going to be really difficult um you know i mean the first day of the battle of the Somme alone 20,000 men were killed so you know that we we know from a glance sometimes sort of how easy it's going to be what we hope to get is a list which concentrates you know say 10 to 20 candidates of who we are quite confident it could be and then at that point we can start really getting into the nitty-gritty that's fascinating i was just really interested to hear sort of the different types of objects that a soldier might have on them so you know even you just said there even a spoon could potentially provide the identity of, of a soldier Oh, definitely. You know, we've had cases where the spoon has been the key. Anything where their service number is potentially written on, obviously, depending on the state of the ground, that does depend on how well these things can be preserved. Quite rarely, you might actually get a piece of material that's got, you know, that's that's got a service number on it or that has like a rank stripe or something like that. But a lot of the time, all that's left is the kind of metal parts. But, you know, they've generally, they're going to have everything with them that you would expect a soldier to have. So they'll have their mess tins, a comb. You know, you obviously always get lots of smoking paraphernalia. Things like matchsticks, we've had matchsticks found, uh, things from a first aid kit, personal items items, pieces of jewellery, coins that they've obviously held on to for quite some time because they had some sort of special meaning. All these things just give you a little glance into the sort of the personal feelings of, of this person. That's fascinating, really, in the sense that you're trying to uncover the identity of the soldier, but you're really gaining a really deeply personal insight into the person that that soldier was, as well as hopefully trying to find the name based on the items that he's got with them, which is, which is, which is fascinating, really. Definitely. In the research that I've been doing, obviously there's there's mention of using DNA as a tool to be able to help try and identify a soldier. How reliable is DNA as, as one of the tools in the arsenal that you have to be able to sort of try and track down the identity of, of soldiers that are found? So when we get to the point where we've got a list of potential candidates for a set of remains that have been found... It's at this point that we think to ourselves, right, the only way we can narrow this down any further is by getting a positive DNA match. What we have to do then is we have to actually trace the next of kin of this soldier. And obviously, you know, for First World War, we're talking more than 100 years now. So at this point, we then use our genealogy skills and we build family trees to see if we can trace the current living relative of every one of our candidates. It's difficult because... I think the general consensus is, is if you're related to someone, you're going to be a DNA match. 
unfortunately it really isn't that simple um you know a granddaughter might not be a match however a third cousin twice removed is and of course if this you know a, a majority of the soldiers are too young to marry you know or, or didn't marry they didn't have any children so we're going down the lines of siblings if there's not many siblings then we're having to kind of go up and across to sort of cousins and down that line so it's a really complicated process to actually find someone that we think is going to be a suitable DNA match and then of course we have to actually contact them and you can imagine when they get a letter from the Ministry of Defence saying we think we found your great great uncle can we please have your DNA people <laughs> can be a little bit suspicious of that so you know we, we have to work hard to sort of build a good relationship so that they trust us to, to, to do that once they give us a DNA sample, we can then compare that with the DNA samples taken from the remains. And, and then we just really hope we've got a match. However, we have to have that list of candidates in the first place. You know, we can't have a DNA database. We can't just store tens of thousands of people's details. You know, we have to have that set of candidates. And when we have that set of candidates, we can then go out and do the testing. However, sometimes despite all of our historical research, we might still not get any matches anyway. And then at that point, they, they have to be buried as unknown. And, you know, I have cases where, you know, I was absolutely convinced that it was going to be this person and it wasn't. All we can do is look at the historical documents and say it should be them. But however, we can't account for what happened, you know, when bombs were going off and, and things were complete chaos, you know, that element of things we can't control and we can't predict whether there was something happened that, that meant that that person should have been there that weren't and there was someone there that shouldn't have been there but was if you if you get my understanding when you go through this process and you say as you say they you might find someone you think i've oh, definitely we've got this person nailed down and then it turns out okay that's actually unfortunately it wasn't who we thought it was what's the kind of uh the kind of hit rate on that what's the kind of how many how many kind of remain unknown to the ones that you kind of find out I mean, it's really difficult for me to say because it entirely depends on the cases that we're working on at the time. If we have cases where there's really good artefacts, you know, that sort of thing, then actually we've probably got a good seven or eight out of ten chance of IDing them. However, if we've got cases where there's really nothing to ID them at all other than maybe a few buttons that, that tell us that they're British Army, but nothing more than that, then there's just no way we will be able to identify them. But I say when we've got a good idea, then, you know, we've probably got a seven or eight out of ten chance of getting it right. And how does the, the work that, that you guys do coincide with the work of the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission and the host nations where the remains have been discovered and other interested parties? I mentioned earlier that cases in France, the CWGC, the sort of official recovery people, you know, and... and they are already really obviously visible and well established in France and Belgium. They already have excellent uh, relationships with the local people, you know, and, and the local government. So, you know, it's great that we have that contact over there. So in France, especially where remains are found, the Commonwealth War Group will go out straight away and, and, and do the recovery. And then they'll do the sort of initial report to send over to us. And then, of course, we work with them towards the end of the process when we either have or haven't made an identification. And they'll prepare the headstone um, and obviously prepare the burial plot because it will be in a Commonwealth War Group Commission cemetery. So we have a really good relationship with them obviously in other countries it's different um in italy say for example we will work closely with the british embassy but instead of sort of you know we will use local funeral directors that sort of thing um but you know the the embassy will really get involved when it comes to making contact with 
the local population and, and helping us out with any language barriers and things like that. You know, it's, it's really important for us to build these relationships with other countries because obviously there are still quite a few sets of remains found, especially, in, you know, it's really important for the Commonwealth War Graves Commission to build those good relationships with the local people in France because every time a farmer goes out to plough his field, potentially there's going to be a discovery. And if they that farmer knows, he can get in contact with the Commonwealth Commission and they're there really quickly then it just makes life ever easier for everybody and obviously we need as much as possible to be able to id them so having them on the ground knowing that they'll carefully excavate remains we can feel confident that we're going to get all the information we need to make an id and another really fascinating aspect of, of your work that i was reading about is how you're able to put names to headstones and, and soldiers who were buried simply as an unknown soldier of the of the great war which is a fantastic achievement how do you how do you go about trying to re-identify these soldiers that are already buried as as unknowns we rely on you know the general public actually to to come to us with cases where they think they may be able to identify you know an unknown soldier sailor airman in a particular grave they then send their case to the commission the commission can obviously they've got all the records for headstones and concentration of all that sort of thing they're able to check their records do their initial research and then you know if they think the person's got a case it then comes to us and then you know we have an army uh, historic you know RAF historic branch and they can then put their input in and then we are the final adjudicators and and we make that final decision as to whether we agree and once that decision has been made the commission will then change the headstone and we will arrange for a ceremony where we'll go out there with members of the current day regiment and, and hopefully with the family as well you know and give them the sort of funeral that they never had before. Obviously, another part of our process is to contact the families and let them know that it's happened. If it wasn't the family, of course, that originally brought the case to us, sometimes it is, which is great. You mentioned earlier about the kind of relationships that you need to build with various organisations and entities, but that must be the most kind of special one. You know, when someone's contacted you and then you eventually find out the name or find out that is that person buried below that headstone or vice versa. When you've got to inform some, we found your, you know, great uncle or great great uncle or whatever it might be. That must be incredibly special kind of privilege to kind of be involved in that. Oh, definitely. And, you know, these cases, they run over quite a long period of time as well. So we really get this chance to become close to the family members, you know, and because we've worked on these cases so long, the soldiers are a part of our family as well. So, you know, you, you end up feeling really close to, to the next of kin. And especially when you're giving DNA results, if you have to give a negative result, it's it can be really upsetting for us because we understand, you know, we want it to be that soldier passionately. So we obviously understand that for them, it's it's even more important to for them to get that closure. So, you know, it, it's really difficult. However, if it is a positive result, then knowing, you know, how happy they are and allowing them to finally kind of have that resting place for their relative, it, it's just a fantastic feeling. And you you might think that, oh, you know, it's been that long ago that people aren't that bothered but actually that's not true at all you know it's even if it is a great great uncle that they never met it's still a part of their family and do you know what for second world war we've had some really we've, we've had sisters we've had sons daughters you know i mean you can't get any closer than that that's, that's really deeply moving like you say to be part of that and you are able on occasions to attend those burials and rededication services to those soldiers that, like you say, you've spent an awful lot of time researching and, and 
on occasions able to re-identify. So what, how does it feel to be part of those ceremonies? Yeah, so we attend every single one to obviously coordinate what's going on because some of them are, are, are huge, especially when there's maybe been a lot of publicity or that we know there's going to be a lot of public attending. And also, you know, we go there to support the families because most of the time the families want to go. And if it's, say, several casualties, there can be 30, 40 family members there. I don't think there's one way you don't feel that little bit of emotion and, you know, we, I think we all feel like we need to go back to our hotel rooms afterwards and have a little bit of a cry because, you know, like I said before, we consider these soldiers part of our family. You know, we've spent that much time working on trying to identify them. You know, we've got that close to the family. But because of all this work we've done, we've also got to know them as a person, you know, so it does get to feel really personal. ways has the work that your team carry out as the JCCC changed compared to the work carried out by the Directorate of Graves Registration and Inquiry and the Imperial now Commonwealth War Graves Commission at the end of the First World War? I think what we always have to appreciate is that when those army units went back into the battlefields of France they were working in the most horrendous conditions um, you know that the land was still terrible it was where it was thick mud you know and they were basically going out there and, and exhuming body after body after body of their own comrades if you actually ever read the war diaries of of those units it's it just rings it home to you as to the terrible conditions that they worked in and of course when they did um, find someone all they had to identify them was what was actually on that person they had to look inside their pockets, um, you know, look around their necks, see if they could find anything that could ID them. And if they couldn't, then that was that. They just had to be buried as unknown. Whereas, you know, they didn't have all the documents that we have access to. But not only that, is I can just, with a click of my button on my computer, I can pull up five or six different war diaries and I can cross-reference them. I can pull up the service records of each soldier. We can get our DNA contractor to come and look at the remains. We can get an anthropologist to study. We can take DNA and compare that with family members. You know, we... Even though we've, you know, it's 100 years on, obviously the technology is so much better, but we have much more chance of probably IDing them than they did, you know, when, when they were doing their work. Yeah, it's interesting because we kind of touched on that when we spoke to Peter Francis from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission about just the sheer, you know, like you say, the kind of horror and the, you know, the things that those teams from the DDRNE saw, you know, when they were trying to identify bodies and just trying to find bodies. And then also the kind of the sheer manpower that's needed for that paperwork machines to actually kind of work. And as you say, you can, now you can kind of just with a, you know, with a search or a click of a mouse, you can kind of pull up a record from, you know, captain, whoever that might have served with this person, this person to kind of help you try and identify where that person might have been or who that person is. It's that kind of sheer manpower that's difficult to kind of get your head around now, I think. I know. And I think, you know, as well, it, it's sort of appreciating the fact that, you know, if I want to know where someone is, I'll send them a quick text and say, where are you? However, you know, back then they just didn't have that luxury at all. So, you know, the search for people was ongoing for months and years. And of course, relatives are, are writing to try and find out what had happened to their particular loved one. And, you know, the, the sheer job of it must have been completely overwhelming. So, you know, it, it really is completely understandable why there are still so many, not just soldiers, obviously sailors and, and airmen with no known grave. And obviously in this podcast, we've kind of focused on the Western Front 
France and Flanders. And obviously that's what a lot of people associate in their minds with seeing battlefield cemeteries and, and, and graves. But as you've touched on previously, you know, your remit extends beyond France and Flanders. You mentioned Canada there as well, obviously in Italy and, and, and the Far East as well. So, you know, you, you could be dealing with casualties from potentially all, all across the world. Yes, I mean, myself personally, with this job, I've travelled to France and Belgium, Italy, the Netherlands, Denmark, Norway, Albania, you know, you name it, we've been there as a team. Obviously, certain countries, it's it's more difficult to work in. Um, you know, I'm currently working on the Korean War, which is obviously after the First and Second World War, but there's still recoveries going on there. And we're working very closely with the Americans, which has been fantastic because, you know, they've got uh, some excellent facilities for DNA testing. What we're doing here um, within our team is we're trying to get DNA samples from all of the relatives of the soldiers missing from the Korean War. And then what we're doing is every time we get one, we are then sending that off to the Americans who are then running it in their database of all the Korean War missing that, that have been found but still haven't been named. That's fascinating that is because Korea, again, is a is a forgotten conflict in many ways that people haven't really heard of. But the fact that you're able to continue that amazing work that you're doing and work with, with like, say, your colleagues in the United States to be able to identify different bodies there, that's... That's that's fascinating. And that's on the far side of the world, completely removed from what you were doing in like France and Flanders. But the same techniques that you use there still apply to those to those bodies then. Yeah, definitely. You know, and it's it's great for us as well because you know we're based in Gloucester. Our barracks is called Imjin Barracks, so we have a real close link to the Korean War here. You know, so it, it just it just makes it even more special that you know I get the chance to work on a project like this in the hope that I can name just one person would be amazing. And thinking back to all of the different cases that you've worked on across your career with the JCCC, is there any specific cases that are really memorable to you? I have a few. <laughs> um, obviously, the cases where we get a really special connection with the family, they're all brilliant. So we had the remains of a second lieutenant found. He actually had which is rare, as I said, a coin with his name engraved on it. So, you know, that really helped us with our ID. But basically, a second lieutenant, Eric Henderson, post office rifles. Um, when I got in contact with the family, it turns out there was three great nieces still living. And the most fantastic thing was they were so aware of their great uncle. He was still such a current part of their family. You know, he was remembered and loved. They had all these letters. You know, they even had Eric's mother's diary where she'd actually put an entry in on the day that she heard of his death so it was such an emotional thing for them and really meant so much which was fantastic because obviously a lot of the time when we do get in contact with families they've never heard of the person how that doesn't make it any less special for them however when you're able to actually read these letters and get to know the man himself a little bit it's it just it's so special I, mean, I did a an id case you know so this is where a grave was gone from unknown to known and the people that brought the case to us were his twin sons um you know they'd never known their father their father was killed before their mother had the chance to let him know that he'd had twin sons and they'd spent their whole life wondering about where their father was and then you know when when they got older actually working to try and find where he was buried and and to be there with them in italy when that grave was rededicated it, it was such an emotional thing and then there's other cases where it's been a real jigsaw trying to find out potential candidates and then it's taken a lot of work doing the genealogy and tracing the family and then to actually get matches and and, and to get it right that's always an amazing feeling 
the feeling of getting a positive match never ever gets any less exciting for us you know you'll always know when it's happened because they'll be cheering and shouting the last big burial I did was for three men of the um, 23rd County of London Battalion and they were found just with one shoulder title between the three of them lots of work sort of narrowed it down to about nine candidates we got two positive matches and then there was one last one and one last set of results we were waiting for so of course we were completely convinced it was going to be a match however it wasn't and we were never able to discover who that third person was but the next of kin was so unbelievably lovely it was just awful having to tell her that it was a negative. However, she still came to the funeral in France and kind of represented the unknown soldier herself, which was just lovely. And that's an important thing to, to mention, really. I mean, this is a, it's a true detective story that you guys go on when you're researching this, you know, and fra- getting pulling fragments of information from different places. And there must be such joy in those eureka moments where you pick something out or you'd stumble across something and you're like that's the key or that's the bit that I need to be able to continue on in the story of trying to find out who these people are. Oh, definitely, definitely. It's 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 just really exciting. And sometimes it can be hugely frustrating because obviously there's maybe one bit of information that should be there, but for some reason isn't anymore. And unfortunately, that's what makes the difference. But, you know, and then another time you can be looking and there's just this, you know, all of a sudden one bit of information suddenly appears to you and you're like, oh my God, that's it, that's key. However, as I say, you can't be completely convinced that you've got it right and then it's still a negative and, you know, it's it's really frustrating. But it can also be really difficult when you're struggling to trace family because, you know, if they were an only child and, and that sort of thing, then it can be impossible to try and find. However, we always do and we always have, you know, if we have to go to down really obscure lines to get a match, we will do. But sometimes just that part of it can take us that long. It, you know, like I say, trying to convince people that, you know, we're not trying to sort of scam them or anything. I think it's those connections, isn't it, that's incredibly powerful over kind of history. I know that we find like, you know, researching films or podcasts or whatever it might be that you do, as you say, you get incredibly invested in people that you've never met, you've got no connection to, but the more you find out about their story and the more you kind of delve in and, you know, uh, immerse yourself in whatever, uh, whoever it might be or whatever subjects might be, the, the more you kind of get invested within it so it must be not that not that we do anything on your war detective kind of level but it's, it's a really interesting thing to hear you kind of say that, that how invested you guys are how how personal it kind of is is that kind of what makes it makes it the job kind of important for you that it is kind of creating those connections whether positively identifying someone or or just kind of creating those connections and creating that kind of awareness of what you guys do and the kind of stories that are there to kind of be told I think it's easy sometimes when you're kind of reading about the overall history of the wars. Um, You know, it's numbers, isn't it? It's easy to get lost in those numbers. However, the cases that we do really remind us that each of these each of these soldiers has a story. Each of these soldiers is somebody's son, somebody's brother, you know, somebody's father, and that family would have been just as devastated to lose them as, you know, you or I would in the same situation. And we owe it to these families to identify them and give them the full military burial that they deserve. And, you know, it's also important for the modern day regiments to be able to see that no matter when the sacrifice was, whether it was 100 years ago or yesterday, they're still going to be remembered the same and they're still going to be treated the same. There's always going to be people out here working to do their best to to give them that final resting place. 
And the cases don't go down either. Ever since we've started this job, it's just increased, really. More building work happening, more houses being built, things like that just mean that more remains are found. And we found that ever since the historical documents have all gone online and been much easier for people to access, also the rededication cases have also increased because it's a lot easier for people to do their research. You know, before you might have had to get a queue and you might have had to go to your local records office and gather all these things together, but now you can sit there and get it all for free, basically. And we, ha we have to keep showing our gratitude to the people that sacrificed their lives so that we can live how we do today by continuing this work. I couldn't say that, you know, we'd, we'd love to be able to do it for every single missing soldier, but, you know, I don't think we ever will. However, we'll do whatever we can to give names to those who we do find. I think having studied the story of the Unknown Warrior, even if you're able to put just one name to a unknown uh, serviceman or a missing serviceman, then, like you say, that makes all the difference, really, to be honest. So the work that you do is is remarkable and it's fantastic to be able to speak to you today and explore that with you. So I'd like to say, Nicola, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast and I really hope you guys continue to, to do the fascinating and amazing work that, that you do. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you.